It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Friday, March 25th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Up ahead on the California Report, we're heading to the courts. We'll hear about developing litigation over yet another sexual abuse case at the Federal Women's Prison in Dublin. Then, the state's attorney general is accusing Encinitas of skirting a new state housing law. And three Muslim Americans are suing the Department of Homeland Security over alleged unconstitutional treatment at LAX. We'll take a look at local news and weather. Then Felton Pruitt sits down with singer-songwriter Slade Cleaves to speak about his upcoming performance at the Nevada Theater. This is the California Report, and I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Yet another guard at the federal women's prison in the Bay Area city of Dublin has been charged with sexual abuse. This at a lockup nicknamed the Rape Club by people incarcerated there. KQED's Alex Emsley reports. 49-year-old Enrique Chavez faces two counts of abusive sexual contact, stemming from two alleged incidents of groping the same incarcerated woman in late 2020. Though he was arrested in Arizona on Sunday, federal prosecutors successfully argued to keep the case sealed until law enforcement could serve multiple search warrants on more as-yet-unidentified suspects in the growing probe of sexual abuse at the prison. Chavez is the fifth employee of the Federal Corrections Institution Dublin to be arrested since late last year, when former warden Ray Garcia was indicted for two counts of sexual abuse. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hemsley. State Attorney General Rob Bonta is once again threatening legal action against a California city that's accused of skirting a new state housing law. SB 9 allows for construction of up to four housing units on land that's been previously zoned for single-family homes. Bonta has sent a letter to the city of Encinitas in North San Diego County urging leaders to approve construction of an apartment complex that would include dozens of units for low-income residents. The city council denied a developer's appeal to permit the project late last year after it drew opposition from residents. Attorney General Bonta has issued similar warnings to the Bay Area city of Woodside and the city of Pasadena after they also attempted to circumvent SB 9. Three Muslim Americans are suing the Department of Homeland Security over what they say is unconstitutional treatment at Los Angeles International Airport. KCRW's Tara Atrian has more. According to a lawsuit filed by the ACLU Foundation of Southern California and two other civil rights groups, the three Muslim Americans were subjected to inappropriate interrogation from U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers when they arrived at LAX from abroad. Among the questions include whether they are Muslim and if so, which religious branch they are a part of, whether they attend a mosque and if so, which one and how often they pray. The plaintiffs say the officers keep the answers to their questions in a law enforcement database for up to 75 years. The civil rights groups claim the questioning by the federal officers violates the travelers' First Amendment freedom of religion alongside the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which bars any government agency or official from burdening a person's exercise of religion. They also allege the interrogations are a part of a broader two-decade-long practice of border officials targeting Muslim Americans because of their religion. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol say, per policy, they do not comment on pending litigation. A new rule just published by the Biden administration will overhaul the way asylum claims made at the border are decided. As KQED's immigration editor Taiki Hendricks reports, that could speed up the process for tens of thousands of asylum seekers. 
With a backlog of 1.7 million cases in U.S. immigration courts, getting an asylum ruling can take years. Now, specially trained asylum officers, not the courts, will decide most cases. Deepgula Sekaram, a professor of law at Santa Clara University, calls it a major innovation. The process is not adversarial. It's an interview. And so all of those things are more likely to lead to maybe better outcomes for the non-citizen or the asylum applicant, but certainly we might think of as a more friendly process. And he says if there's funding for more asylum officers, the new system could lead to faster outcomes. For The California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. Support for The California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system, on the web at chcf.org slash health-equity. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically, Learn more at Irvine.org. And now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's weekly magazine. This week, reporter Lee Romney tells us about a vibrant young woman from Humboldt County's Hoopa Valley Reservation who lost her life to violence. What happened to her is unfortunately too common in indigenous communities where women go missing or are murdered. Here's an excerpt. Angela Lynn McConnell grew up with her younger brother and their mom in the forested hills of Hoopa Valley. She was proud of her heritage, in addition to her Hoopa roots. She was part Mojave from Park, Arizona, which is her grandma. Her her father, Kevin McConnell, his father was Yurok, and he was part Kurukindi. Angela was a budding journalist, committed to shedding light on important tribal issues, and she had a light-up-the-room kind of energy. She was so lively, bubbly, giving, very helpful to the family. That's Angela's mom, Tammy Carpenter. Over the past three and a half years, she's had to face the most unbearable loss that any parent could experience. Her only daughter was 26 years old when she was shot to death. I miss talking with her early in the mornings, miss her hugs and her kisses. But Tammy and other family members of missing and murdered Indigenous women have been coming together to demand justice. Family members, if you have a missing and murdered loved one, somebody that's still missing or somebody that's been murdered, please come up and stand with us. The Yurok tribe, right next door to the Hoopa Valley Reservation, has done some research into why cases like these are so hard to solve. One reason, a legacy of mistreatment by law enforcement that's led to deep mistrust. That's why the Yurok police chief is working to educate other cops about that history. And I'll explain that this mistrust of law enforcement comes not from you, but from generations ago. You can hear the rest of that documentary on this week's California Report magazine. Tune in on some public radio stations or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And that's the California Report for Friday, March 25th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, and Chris Hoff. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Alice Wolfley, and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day and talk to you on Monday. Now let's take a look at regional news. Nevada County Public Health reports eight new confirmed COVID-19 cases today. 20 cases are currently active. No one is hospitalized. Firefighters responded to a vegetation fire from a homeless encampment under the Highway 49 Banner Lava Cap overpass Thursday afternoon. Upon arrival, they noticed smoke emanating from inside the overpass and out through vents. This prompted officials to conduct a confined space entry, accessing interior crawl spaces from the top of the overpass. A team from Grass Valley Fire, Cal Fire, Nevada County Consolidated, California Highway Patrol, and Caltrans assembled. Timbers in the Banner Lava Cap overpass, possibly left from its construction, were found smoldering. These were removed and the structure was deemed safe by a Caltrans senior engineer. However, the structure will be further evaluated. Nevada County deputies report making contact with one person in connection with the fire. This reported by the Union of Grass Valley. There's no end in sight to the Sacramento City Unified teacher strike as they enter their third day with no date set for bargaining talks. The impasse continues between the District and Sacramento City Teachers Association which on Wednesday began an open-ended strike that closed instruction across the K-12 district of about 40,000 students and roughly 80 campuses. Teachers and staff are striking over health and safety protocols amid the COVID-19 pandemic and staffing shortages that have left hundreds of students without a full-time teacher. The teachers' union has been working under an expired contract since July 1, 2019. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. Monday, we reported on the burglary of Fire Safe Council of Nevada County's equipment shop. Individuals cut the rear door padlock and entered the East Main Street building undetected. They then made off with Fire Safe's entire inventory of chainsaws. On Tuesday, Grass Valley Police Department detectives served a search warrant on an apartment in the 100 block of Dorsey Drive. There, they located four of the stolen chainsaws. Despite the serial numbers having been filed off, the saws retained their Fire Safe Council stickers. Property recently stolen from tree trimming trucks parked at the Nevada County Fairgrounds was also recovered. 30-year-old Joshua Hudson and 34-year-old Jonathan Kimson were taken into custody for possession of the stolen chainsaws and multiple drug charges, including possession of fentanyl and methamphetamine. Two other individuals, 33-year-old Jennifer Blanchard and 29-year-old Natasha Wagner, were arrested for drug-related charges as well. Detectives believe the unrecovered chainsaws were quickly sold. The Fire Safe Council is a local nonprofit focusing on wildfire mitigation through fire safety projects and education. Nevada County's free green waste disposal weekend began today. The event runs through Sunday the 27th. The program aims to help homeowners address storm debris on their properties in advance of fire season. There's no size or volume limit for storm-related green waste debris residents may bring. However, Trash, treated wood, and root balls can't be accepted. 
Bring your green waste to 12625 Brunswick Road in Grass Valley, anytime between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Enter at Mill Site in East Bennett. Diane Federley, founding artistic and longtime executive director of the Foothill Theater Company, died Tuesday at the age of 83. Federley co-founded FTC with her husband Ralph, a professor in the UC Davis Theater Department, and Bruce and Leslie West. Federley remained a pivotal presence in the Nevada County art scene for over four decades. Now let's take a look at our regional weather. This evening and Saturday won't be quite as warm as the unseasonably high temps we've seen this past week. These cooler temperatures will stay with us through Sunday and Monday, with the possibility of showers later Sunday and Monday. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear with the low around 49. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 73. Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 66. Winds pick up in the afternoon with gusts as high as 18 miles per hour. Rain is likely Sunday night, mainly after 11 p.m. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 35. Saturday, partly sunny with a high near 64. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a high near 59. Gusts as high as 30 miles per hour. A slight chance of rain Sunday night before 11 p.m. Snow level lowering to 6,200 feet after midnight. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 47. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 80. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a high near 73. Rain mainly after 11 p.m. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Stay tuned. Up ahead, Felton Pruitt speaks with singer-songwriter Slade Cleaves. We're talking with Slade Cleaves, who is going to be coming to our area and playing for Paul Emery over at the Nevada Theater in Nevada City this coming Tuesday, March 29th. Uh, Slade, we're certainly looking forward to getting you back into town. Yeah, I haven't been on the West Coast in a long time. Looking forward to it myself. Well, you know, nobody's been anywhere for a long time, considering (laughs) the last couple of years. But you've been back here before. I've seen you at the Nevada Theater at least once, and I know you've played the Oddfellas Hall, and then you've played all around our area. So it's great to have you coming back. It's good to be back. And, you know, I was looking at your website. Are you working on new recordings, too? Indeed, yeah. That uh, My new picture on my website is a picture of the recording studio that we booked. Um, we only can book a few days at a time because post-pandemic, everybody's getting out there and doing recording their songs. So we had a Hard time scheduling. We did a few days in February, and we're doing a few days in April, and hopefully we'll wrap it up in May. Where are you recording? The Legendary Zone Studio in Dripping Springs, the next town over from where I am. That's where uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard does a lot of his recording. Do you have your new record flushed out, or are you just getting started? Well, we've only been in the studio three days, so we've got about seven songs, rough, rough mixes on seven songs, and uh, about seven songs in the ready to go for the next uh, session, and we'll just uh, pick out the best ones. And Scrappy Judd is producing, and he's got a sequence ready, but I'm not even thinking album-wise. I mean, I've been saying this for years, but I think I really think I might just release singles for a while. You know, just, you know, Hank Williams never put out albums. He just put out singles every couple of months. So I'm going to 
I might try that in the future. We'll see what happens. And then you can have the 24 great hits come out later on, right? Like exactly. Hank did. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you got a title for your album? or Well, I guess not. If it's not an album, no. you wouldn't even have a title. No, it's just a batch of songs. It's just a, it's just the songs that are ready to go right now. There's about 16 songs that are ready to go. You got some pandemic-themed tunes in there? That definitely crept in. Some themes of... Uh, of uh, struggle and frustration and doubt and some themes of uh, sort of sticking together and trying to get it through together. So, yeah, you'll see some of that pandemic in there for yeah. sure. What was the pandemic like for you and your wife, Karen? Uh, how'd you guys make out? Well, it started out just really mysterious, you know, just not knowing how long we'd have to put up with it. Karen had booked like the best year of touring that she'd ever done before in the late 2019, early 2020. You know, she had booked the whole year of 2020 out from all over the U.S. and was all ready to go. And, the, you know, literally the first the first batch of shows was in, I think, the second week of March. So literally just when the shutdowns were happening and we thought, oh, well, we'll cancel two or three weeks of shows and then we'll get back on the road. Of course, it was 22 months before we got back on the road. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was frustrating. It was scary at first. And we were very lucky that we have enough of a fan base that supported us through merchandise sales. and figured out how to do the live streams. It was pretty rocky at first, but we figured out those skills and our, our fans came through for us and kept the lights on for us throughout those 22 months. So I feel very fortunate that we, we came through uh, a lot better than some folks, that's for sure. How did you adjust to becoming a virtual performer as opposed to a live performer? <laughs> it's really tough, man. Uh, trying to connect with people looking into a camera lens and and trying to uh, monitor monitor the YouTube stream and the, the bit rate and the, all those little my computer over overheating you know its hard drive because <laughs> it was working so hard when I tried to do streaming at Facebook and YouTube at the same time it was really hard on my CPU and it was maxing out and so yeah it was some some technical stuff and some and some performance stuff that I had to learn. And of course, I only did it about once a month, so it took me a long time to to learn how to do it. I just just one did one a few days ago, and it went really well. So I'm thankful that we have that that avenue. Now that you have it all down, you have to go back out on the road and relearn how to play live. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did do one couple of weeks of touring in the fall last year, and that that was. I mean, remembering all the words to my songs, which are fairly wordy, you may have noticed, that was a challenge. But also remembering what I talk about between songs, that's like a whole other set of things to memorize or prepare for. And uh, I kind of forgot about that. So I was, I was pretty flustered on stage between songs, like a pretty amateur for a couple of days there. I've heard comedians talk about how hard it was to do a comedy during the pandemic when you like you say you're just talking to a, a lens there a camera what was it like trying to perform in especially new songs and not getting the feedback that you would from a live audience that was tough i'm not as tough as being a comedian i'm sure but um <laughs> you know you, you finish a song and there's dead silence you know? right. and and even on the even in the chat it takes about 15 seconds for the chat to to get to back back to me so i'm like hemming and hawing and talking and then bless their hearts you know people in the chat will will give the thumbs up and words of encouragement and little emoji claps and stuff like that so you know again i feel so lucky that i have a, a core following the super fans that 
uh, really, really lifted us up through the dark times. We've known each other for, gosh, I don't know, 25 years or so. When, how did you get started and when did that all, when did you become what you would say a musician, a traveling, working musician? Um, well, it's hard to say. I guess uh, <laughs> there's so many different starting points. There's from playing piano as a kid and listening to records and then playing in a garage band with my buddies in, in high school and then playing in a cover band in college and then being a busker later in college and then quitting the, my day job to start playing in bars in the, in the late, 19, uh, late 1980s and then moving to Austin in the early 90s and just kind of playing in Maine and Texas, my two home bases, and then starting to fill in the gaps in between uh, on tours. Uh, that was in the early 90s and I got a record deal in the mid-90s. So I guess around 1997 is when I got my first national record deal with Rounder Records, and they got me on radio stations around the country and, and gave me an opportunity to start traveling and uh, seeing this great country. You could teach a college class as a professor of how to become a folk musician. Yeah, you know, I, I would like to offer advice, and some people ask for advice, but, you know, I feel like a music career is like inventing the wheel, you know? It, it, there's so many variables as to your own uh, strengths and weaknesses, and, as the, and the music industry changes so rapidly. Uh, so a lot of the advice I would have offered for my career is kind of, obsolete now like i don't know just like i used to send postcards in the mail and lick stamps and send postcards to people in the mail things like that you know i built my career on the um, dynamic of people hearing my song on a cool radio station and they drive to borders and buy the cd right then and then come see me at the show when i came to town so that that ecosystem doesn't really work anymore so yeah i'd love to, love to be able to offer some advice to people, but uh, like I said, it changes too fast <laughs> for me. Well, it seems like maybe that personal touch of signing the postcards and mailing them out is part of the reason why you were successful, though, because you kept that personal relationship with your audience going. Yeah, and, and with radio, too. I mean, I was so thankful for the cool community radio stations like KVMR around the country, and there's, you know, there's a few dozen of them, but Compared to the thousands of commercial stations, they're a rarity. Not every town has a cool radio station. But once I made a connection with them, I did send out personalized letters. I remember when Broke Down came out and uh, was released in, in January of 2000, 22 years ago. And I remember in the months leading up to that, writing a whole lot of personalized letters and, and recommending which songs, which DJ I thought would want to play. And... You know, when Broke Down came out, my, my world did change. I, I went from uh, uh, a money-losing hobby to a profession in the course of that year, 2000. Well, we certainly are glad that you uh, hung in there and pursued it, because the work that you've put out over the years has, well, it's just warmed our heart, usually. And we always love getting to see you, especially when you're coming to the Nevada Theater this next Tuesday, and you're bringing Scrappy Judd Newcomb with you. Yeah, he'll be swinging guitar, and Karen will be swinging the merch. We've been talking with Slade Cleves. He's going to be at the Nevada Theater Tuesday, March 29th, a 7.30 show for Paul Emery. Always great to have you in our town, Slade. Always great to catch up with you, Felton.
That's our newscast for this Friday, March 25th. Head over to kvmr.org to catch up on anything you may have missed in tonight's newscast. KVMR gets support from Sweetland Garden Mercantile in downtown North San Juan, offering fruit trees, veggie starts, fertilizers, organic soils, and drip irrigation for spring garden preparation. More information at sweetlandgm.com or 2929000. Dig it. And Sol Barros and Audiology Associates Hearing Center, connecting the Nevada County community to the sounds of life, offering holistic hearing health care, including hearing tests, earwax removal, hearing aids, and counseling. More information at grassvalleyhearing.com. Keep it tuned to your community radio station. At 6.30, it's the California Report magazine. Earlier this week, we brought you coverage of a new PBS documentary on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Tonight, the California Report magazine looks at a case from Humboldt County. Angela Lynn McConnell grew up in the forested hills of the Hoopa Valley Reservation. Her body was found in 2018. She was 26 years old. On this episode, what Northern California tribes are doing to combat the crisis of violence against Indigenous women. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Thank you.